Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined as always by Steve Hayes, David French, and Jonah Goldberg. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Later on, we'll hear from our sponsor for today, ExpressVPN. Okay, today we're going to try something a little different. Each of us have come with a topic. So we'll hit the return of the president's coronavirus press conference, the crack up of the House Republicans, never Trump campaigning, and what to do about China's human rights abuses. But each of those will be introduced by one of us, and we'll sort of go from there. At the very end, we were supposed to talk about rock concerts, but instead we got some very weird vignettes into David Frenchism, I'm going to call it. Also, make sure to join us Thursday night for another Dispatch Live, 8.30 p.m. Eastern. This is for members only. So join, become a member, Come to Dispatch Live. It's video. We take questions from the audience. It gets weird. It gets serious. It gets fun. Uh, The guys bring drinks. And I get to bring a drink, I guess, this week. That's exciting. Let's dive right in. Jonah. You're up first. What do you want to talk about today? Uh, well, I, I would like to air a lot of grievances, but uh, mm. that would be unprofessional. Um, I'm going to go with being on the news. <laughs> That'd be a real change. For it would you. be. It would be. Uh, um, I want to go on the news since uh, President Trump has, after a, uh, a hiatus of X number of weeks or months, he has come back with the coronavirus task force um, pressers. Um, although the task force really wasn't present, including any medical professionals. And um, I'm of two minds on it. On the one hand, it is better for America that he now recognizes to one extent or another the corona pandemic is it's in his political interest to deal responsibly or to be perceived as dealing responsibly with the pandemic. So and it is it is. So I'm glad that he that he is doing it in the sense of calling balls and strikes and whatnot. On the flip side, one got the sense that the same problems that bedeviled the previous uh, press conferences, which remember basically got wound down after uh, he suggested that maybe we should look into exposing our internal organs with light um, or <laughs> applying disinfectant in some way that um, most doctors thought uh, was ill-advised. Um, and, and, but he got himself into trouble with those things long before that by doing these rambling sort of uh, Castro without his Ritalin um, lengthy speeches um, and rally kind of things. And you can just see that that is where he wants to go with these things. And I, so I think it is not going to be the political benefit for him that it otherwise could be if he stayed disciplined. And I think the real sort of uh, moment when at least several staffers had to have dropped their lattes on their shoes and gone, oh, crap, is when he had said uh, he wishes nothing but the best for uh, Jazane Maxwell. I can never forget how you're supposed to pronounce her first name. Um, the jailbait 
uh, wrangler for Jeffrey Epstein, who is in jail. Um, and I think that this just portends um, the pro- the same problems that he hit that he held at bay yesterday for the most part, you can tell are going to come back into this. And so he's not going to get the political boost out of it. And the country's not going to get the boost out of it that it otherwise would. That's my take on last yesterday's press conference. Do you think, though, that by him sort of endorsing mask wearing in a more forceful way that we're going to see a shift then in behavior slash polling among Republicans and his base? You know, that's a good question. And, and again, that's a good example of the plus side of him doing that, right? This, I mean, this is when he says that about masks, someone has gotten to him and explained to him that you can't actually start doing the economy roaring back stuff until you take care of the pandemic. Masks are essential to the pandemic. Um, and so that was a positive thing. I'm curious to see whether uh, it has that much trickle down. People, if you're bought in at this point, the idea that you are, um, you know, somewhere between a cuck and a, a castrati <laughs> and a fool for wearing a mask, the idea that Trump sort of saying, look, they have an impact to be better if you wore them, whether that's going to change those attitudes at this point. Um, but it's better that he did it than he didn't. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that to me was, we've seen all of this before. Uh, How many times did we say in phase one of the response to the coronavirus with the daily briefings that, oh, this one's better? You know, oh, yeah, no, now he understands this one's better. And then you would have, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four that were in, within a range of something that would resemble something you'd see in a normal, a more normal administration. And then we'd go right back to the political rift or the fight with the press or whatever it was. But I do think there is at least a, a good takeaway on the mask. I think that the mask culture war, which y'all know drives me insane, has a spectrum of participants. And the people, I, Jonah, I think Jonah's completely right. The people who have a lot of sunk costs into uh, anti-mask advocacy, this isn't going to do anything. I mean, this would just be, for example, evidence of like Fauci's nefarious influence on Trump. Um, but there are a lot of people who they don't really have sunk costs into it. They're still, believe it or not, just they just don't really understand the purpose of the mask. I mean, I run into this all the time. Uh, You still run into people who don't know that you should wear it to protect other people. They still think it's primarily for self-protection and they don't want to seem scared. And so I do think there is a, a slice of America that is going to be positively influenced by that. And that's, you know, a, a takeaway if he can stick with it, if he can be consistent with it. But as far as the rest of it, I mean, we all know what's next. I mean, just let's just wait a few days and we're going to have a, we're going to have an outburst uh, or we're going to have a nonsensical word salad and it's going to feel like deja vu all over again. So can I ask, do any of you have a theory about why he said that about Maxwell? And it wasn't even it wasn't even the, just the Maxwell thing. I mean, remember in in the in the press conference itself where he mostly stuck to reading prepared text, he said both, I don't like to say this, but the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. And then he said, it's just going to disappear. 
again, like this is one of his favorite lines. I mean, right. he, he can't even, you know, the second he gets off script, um, he starts mixing his messages. So I, I guess I have a slightly different view. I don't think the briefings matter at all. I mean, I, I hope they have some effect on the mask wearing along with Joan and David. I just don't think they matter at all. I think what matters is how the government, how the United States does against the pandemic and whether Donald Trump and his administration are seen as playing a constructive role in helping beat it back. And I think for many people, maybe most, if you look at some of the polling, that question has been answered. And the answer is no, the administration hasn't handled this well at all. I think it's hard to turn that around. When you look at, we had an overnight death total of more than 1,000. Um, again, we have seen this increase in cases. Um, you've seen these many outbreaks. You're talking about 70,000 new cases a day, 65,000 new cases a day. This was poorly handled. The results are in. And I think what, what's actually going to matter far more than the briefings is just how those results continue. Yeah, the only place where I might disagree with that is that Trump still had, had people to lose. This thing was only now spiking in red states and um, in Sunbelt, and he was only just recently starting to hemorrhage seniors. Uh, if you start having seniors go in red states, uh, you could see even bigger chunks of his coalition going. So, like, I was just going to say, like, from a political standpoint, the like the if you were making strategic decisions and were like, hey, we're bleeding seniors and we're bleeding suburban moms, like just to pick two, for instance. Like, what did this press conference do to help staunch that bleeding? And in part because he was on message, I'm not sure it did a lot, right? Because it didn't make news in the same way, except like Trump changes his tone. Like the mass thing didn't make a ton of news. If you're not a like minute to minute news follower or watched a press conference that was at 5 p.m., I don't think you saw it. And so what's weird and has always been kind of a weird part about the Trump candidacy and the Trump presidency is uh, he gets into low uh, likelihood voters by making controversial statements in the most news. So for this press conference to work and the things that he has problems with, he kind of has to say something controversial, but that also resonates with the groups he's bleeding out with. Okay, so again, I, I'm going to die on this hill. I want an answer okay. from people. <laughs> Why did he say this thing about Maxwell? If you listen to Morning Joe this morning, where they are, they're really starting to just spiral into completely unhinged, they're convinced it's that she has something to hide, and this was like his eh. messages to uh, Roger Stone and all these other people. <laughs> I'm not sure I see it, um, but no. it what, politically, you're talking about get it. You know, is, is there a constituency of low propensity voters out there that really wanted him to wish? This woman well, because <laughs> I mean, that was that was the thing that was like that made the most news to the media obsessed. But he doesn't really ever attack people unless they've attacked him. Like if they've done something bad, but it doesn't involve him. Like and plus, he doesn't know what pictures are out there with him and her. I, that's part of it, I bet. But I don't think I don't buy into some conspiracy theory. Yeah, there's a bunch of pictures with him and her, and I I think it's I mean boils down to what you're saying, Sarah. One. She's never attacked him. Two, he's they've been friendly, you know. And in his mind, if you're friendly with me and you've never attacked me, um, he'll throw out a good word. He'll throw out he'll throw out a good word here or there. I mean, also if he I, says I, something negative about her, then they have to say, "Well, yeah, but you hung out with her. Did you know she was 
you know, helping a pedophile rape children. So you get that next question. And if you just say, like, I wish her well, the next question is, what the hell? Instead of, <laughs> right, that, did you? That, that is a fair answer. I will take that. And it's, the, not, the, it's not It's not. It's not as if this is the first time he's had had kind words or well wishes for a moral bottom dweller. I mean, right. he, he does. He, he's praised Kim Jong-un. He, according to John Bolton's book, encouraged uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping to build more concentration camps. I mean, the 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 Zane Maxwell Maxwell comment was sort of surprising, and obviously, it's the kind of thing that if it were uttered by any other um, president, it would be much bigger news. But I think it's sort of of a piece with what we've seen from him in other circumstances. Well, let's move on to our next topic. Next person, Steve, you're up. You want to talk about the fractures in the GOP conference that, uh, you know, there were some tectonic plate shifts yesterday. Yeah, there were. This was really interesting. I mean, I think we we, we got at this a little bit in, in the morning dispatch today. Um, I think we're watching. Not a little. It was pretty long. It, it was pretty long. That's true. Probably could have been longer, actually. There, there was something we left out, believe it or not. Um, I think we're watching the, the Republican Party have sort of a nervous breakdown. Um, if, if you look at uh, what happened uh, in the House of Representatives Republican conference meeting yesterday where uh, House Freedom Caucus members, one after another after another, lined up, grabbed the microphone and teed off on, on Liz Cheney for uh, being insufficiently loyal to Donald Trump. That's sort of um, moment number one. Moment number two is this sort of back and forth inside the the Senate lunch where Tom Cotton, in effect, gives a a speech saying, hey, we really ought to uh, take into consideration the wishes of our most vulnerable Senate members, the people who are up for reelection as we craft this this um, second stimulus, this trillion dollar aid package, coronavirus aid package. Uh, And then Ted Cruz, some 15, 20 minutes later, says you know, this is crazy. We shouldn't be spending this this kind of money. Um, and then all of that you, ha- you have against the backdrop of these continuing ongoing fights from disaffected Republicans in the Lincoln Project who are, you know, taking shots at National Review. Um, are, uh, you have John Weaver, uh, prominent Lincoln Project um, spokesman and strategist, former strategist. Don't step for on the next topic. John McCain. I'm not going to step on it. This is a preview. This is what, you know, leading <laughs> into that. You're just kicking it in the one, shins. Yeah, one man's preview is another man's stomp. <laughs> um, you know, he, he, and, and he's teeing off. You, you have basically all of these things happening on the same day. I do think that the the fight, or the the sort of ambush of Liz Cheney, in the House GOP conference meeting is the most interesting of these because it seems to have been pretty well coordinated. I did a a bunch of reporting on this. I couldn't get anybody to acknowledge that it was coordinated, but it was one after another after another, and they were all hitting her for the same thing. This is interesting for a couple reasons. One, the House Freedom Caucus being the party unity enforcers, you couldn't make irony 
any greater than that. If if the if you told the 2015 <laughs> me that Jim Jordan was going to be the one who was enforcing party loyalty, we would have laughed. We would have thought that was crazy. The House Freedom Caucus made its bones by aggressively confronting Republican Party leadership to try to pull the party further to the right, mostly on debt and deficit issues. Now you have the House Freedom Caucus enforcing party loyalty on behalf of Donald Trump, who pretty plainly cares not a whit about these debt and deficit issues, spending issues that drove the creation of the House Freedom Caucus. So I think you have you have that. There's something else I think that's happening, too. I think people are already looking well beyond November, um, politicians. And I think you look at November, if Republicans have um, the kind of November 3rd that polls increasingly suggest they will, which would be loss of the presidency, losses of seats in the House of Representatives, and loss of the Senate, um, people are going to be looking for, for folks to blame and to, to be seeing what they can do next. I think Jim Jordan, um, who was probably most aggressive, along with Matt Gates in his attacks on Liz Cheney, is looking at her as a potential rival to be minority leader. Um, if Kevin McCarthy is gone and Steve Scalise is gone. So he's teeing up an attack that he hopes to pick up post-election. Okay, but if you're the rest of the caucus, you know, you're not Freedom Caucus and you're not in leadership. You're that happy in-between backbench member. Did this win anyone over? On either side. Yeah, I I don't think so. I mean, it it was very interesting. I mean, Having Matt Gates lead it off, if there was some strategic play, having Matt Gates do it was probably not the the best move because he's known as a stunt guy. He did the stunt, um, the storming out of the the, the the storming into the the skiff, the intelligence facility during the the impeachment um, um, hearings. He was the guy who wore the gas mask to the floor for the coronavirus vote. I mean, he's not a terribly serious guy. Um, so having him do this, I think is not likely to, to bring a lot of people on, but if you wanted it to just be something that sort of takes a, 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 you know, a chunk out of Liz Cheney, maybe it was effective. Interestingly, Gates, uh, on his podcast, which he calls hot takes with Matt Gates. Um, (laughs) so it's literally the opposite of the dispatch, just to be clear, like his branding in every every word is doing some work there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got you really have to you have to listen to it too because he he to, to transition between. Do segments, I have to listen to it? Do I really? I mean, <laughs> it's it's pretty entertaining for okay. for a couple of reasons. In between segments, he cuts to a sizzle sound effect, so he finishes the segment and then it goes. Okay, Caleb, move to maybe, the next segment. Caleb, we might need to do that to be it's, honest. I mean, it like, is. <laughs> It is some uh, pretty amazing. What would our sound effect level. be between segments? <laughs> you know that creak, question. that rolling creak of a rocking chair, <laughs> 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 and then like a vague, like in the distance, you hear "Get off my lawn." <laughs> that could work, or or there's a specific sound that if you haven't owned a basset hound, you may not know, but it's the when they lift their head slightly to see what's going on, yawn in response to it. And then drop their head down with a thud back on the floor. Um, That's probably a little unfair to us, but anyway. So, Steve, is this going to keep happening or was this a one-off? 
Yeah, no, I think I think this is a preview of of things to come. Um, you know, there, there we've talked about it on this podcast a, a number of times. There is considerable uh, lack of enthusiasm for Donald Trump among elected Republicans, particularly in uh, in Congress, in the House and the Senate. And I think you're starting to see some of them more willing to challenge him, particularly as his as his position um, looks weaker and weaker heading into November. And interestingly, um, Matt Gates on his Hot Takes podcast acknowledged this, not something I would have expected to hear from Matt Gates, but as he was talking about the likely outcome of what what happened yesterday, his his attack on Liz Cheney and call for her to be removed from her post. He said, I do suspect that Liz still has substantial respect within the Republican conference because we got a lot of people in the Republican conference who aren't the biggest supporters of the president. Pretty interesting comment from somebody who is one of the president's biggest supporters in Congress to uh, sort of acknowledge that there are a lot of people who aren't. And I don't think he means on a relative basis just because he's so enthusiastic. I think he's describing the situation accurately. By the way, correct me if I'm wrong, but this wasn't a leak. Like this actually was Matt, like this, this whole scenario of what happened at the conference thing, like they put it out there themselves that they attacked her. Yeah. I mean, there was a leak. Politico uh, had a a series of tweets, a reporter for Politico had a series of tweets as it was happening, like in real time. So somebody was leaking, but then Gates, these, these uh, meetings are usually leaked. You have members who are willing to talk about them on background. They find their way into the public. But interestingly, Gates uh, on his podcast just gave an on the record blow by blow of what happened behind closed doors. Um, I think that's interesting because I think that means they wanted the president to see it. They wanted, yes. you know, this was a, a signal. So I, I don't want anyone to confuse me for Matt Gates. Um, and since I don't look like a Playmobil action figure. That's usually not a problem. But uh, I have a hot take here. Um, Sizzles noise. Sizzle noise. <laughs> um, so uh, this is something David and I have discussed um, a little bit off air. Um, as some people might know, David and I are um, several of the leading villains in this book about the never Trumpers that's out by this <laughs> crazy person. And um, <laughs> Uh, no need to get in the weeds on that, but one of the interesting things that's coming more and more clear is that on for certain segments of the right, the new fault line isn't big government conservatism versus small government conservatism, nationalism versus patriotism, classical liberalism versus robust post-liberal integralism and all this kind of stuff. That's for the faculty lounge kind of argument um, in the in the sort of back alleys of the Twitter sphere and social media, it's whether or not you were a brave warrior against the quote unquote Russia hoax, or whether you were in league with the media and the deep state in trying to set up the president. And there's an enormous amount of bad faith in all of this stuff. But I do think that like, you know, so for the other, David probably remembers this. The other day, Connor Friedersdorf from The Atlantic, he had this list of conservatives to follow. Me and David were on it. Uh, for all I know, the rest of you guys were too. George Will, whatever. And a bunch of those real MAGA types got really mad about it and said, this is ridiculous. 
None of these people are conservatives. They were all in on the Russia hoax, <laughs> which factually is not true, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. Um, I think the transformation of the House Freedom Caucus into the Trump Loyalist Caucus um, is part and parcel of this story. And if you if you look at the way uh, you know Jim Jordan and some of these guys acted, it 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 they've become. I mean, there was a time when people like Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan hated each other because Nunes was a John Boehner defender and Jordan was a tormentor of John Boehner. That fault line about debt and taxes and all that kind of stuff, that's gone. And it's really whether you're on the side of the own the libs, quasi or wholly conspiratorial MAGA stuff, or you're not. And <clears throat> those fault lines, I think it's there's still time. They need to sort of... Uh, you know, as Matt Gates might put it, they need to sizzle a bit more. Um, but it's not a coherent ideological divide. It's like whether or not um, OANN News thinks you're a hero or not um, <laughs> is like one of these fault lines now. And um, I think there's some sort of feedback mechanisms that are infecting the way this is playing out in the House. Um, and of course, the broader world of sort of conservative media. Am I crazy about that? I don't know, but that's how I see it. David, is he crazy? I don't know. I, I don't think that's crazy. I mean, I think there's a um, temperamental, I don't know if you, you would call it a temperamental divide or a dispositional divide uh, between people who are otherwise sort of, you know, supporter, generally supporters of the president in public. Um, but are they willing to be a warrior or not willing to be a warrior? Are they willing to define themselves around owning the libs or they have a, a actual coherent governing platform? As I hear Steve talk, it seems to me that maybe there is some hope if, if the current polling trends continue and if there is further losses and if there are further losses in the House, for, uh, if the Senate is lost, if the presidency is lost, I mean, one concern is that what you're left with is a smaller, redder, meaning uh, in today's parlance, Trumpier party, um, which then would say in many ways that the problem is in charge of the solution. <laughs> um, and uh, what I'm hearing is maybe that's not entirely the case, that um, a chunk of that red base is still not fully on board with the Trump project, at least behind closed doors. And uh, perhaps they will be emboldened if Trump doesn't, if the present trends continue and Trump does in fact lose. But I, I think if you're looking for the long-term health of the Republican Party and there's something uh, somewhat of a kind of the rump Trumpiest part of the party is the party after the election, um, in one sense that that would mean that there isn't necessarily a course correction coming, that much more of a, you know, a, a narrative would emerge of we were done in by those nefarious never Trumpers. We were done in by the nefarious media. And what we need to do is just fight all those people harder. Um, but I, you know, interestingly, hearing that from Gates actually gives me some hope that once, if the spell of Trump dissipates, that there can be some really robust debate here, even within a rump GOP that exists afterwards. And maybe that's wildly optimistic. Yeah. Sarah, let me get your thoughts. And then before we jump to the next thing, and then I want to 
I want to add a drop in a little poll that sort of points to, to that underlines David's point. All right, but we're moving on after this. Okay. <laughs> Go for your thoughts. <laughs> oh, my thoughts. Um, uh, you know, I think that there's going to be such a unknown yet civil war that will, I, I think the Russia thing is actually a really, really good point because I think that will be a very easy touchstone for the different factions to use. Um, but I, I just don't think we know yet. I don't think that the Freedom Caucus guys as of now have their organizational skills together yet to make a real run for it, but they're going to be the inheritors of the base if they do. Uh, and the Liz Cheney's are at a disadvantage in that sense. So we shall, I mean, that's, that does segue into our next topic. Wait, wait, I'm waiting. Um, <laughs> so I, you didn't hear the sizzle noise yet. The sizzle <laughs> noise is how you'll know. I, I will. Let me disagree. I, I disagree to a certain extent. I think that the analysis on the Russia hoax uh, as a source of enthusiasm for sort of the hardcore MAGA base is correct. I don't think if you're looking at elected officials, though, there are many people who performed that warrior role that Jonah's talking about. I mean, it was a pretty small group. We saw them at the press conferences every day. It was, you know, Elise Stefanik and Lee Zeldin and Matt Gates and Jordan and, and a handful of others. And but it's more like the opposite, Steve. It's more like the ones that they that some group can point to an outside group and say, you didn't support the president right. during but that. But that's a big it's group. Not- that's what I'm saying. That's a huge. Yeah. That's the that's the vast majority of the Republican conference in the House. We're not outspoken right, but, defenders. But what, I mean, they all- what def- what defines the House Freedom Caucus right now, other than a mix of providing sound bites for primetime Fox and being a Trump loyalist? I mean, it's it's those things. Yeah, that's it. Right. I mean, so that's sort of my point. Yeah. Well, that's my point is that the Russia thing, the Russia hoax, the deep state, Trump is awesome. Uh, These are the ideological. It used to be the House Freedom Caucus, as you write, was an ideological enforcer. And it is now it's 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 sort of like a mob enforcer now. This is our godfather. This is how we roll. We hate that other family. And the rest is, and so there's no intellectual coherence to it. Anymore. I agree with that. My point is a narrow one, which is I just don't think it's a very big group. I mean, if you look at the Freedom Caucus, there's, you know, nobody knows exactly how many members, but the estimates are 35 to 40. It's just not that big a group. And I think if you look at the Republican conference and how they behaved during the impeachment, you didn't have a lot of people other than that, that sort of core Freedom Caucus plus group rushing to the microphone to defend the president. I think most people thought what the president did was wrong and didn't just didn't want to say it. So quickly, before we move on, I'll give you one last um, one last uh, poll that I think bolsters my point. Really interesting poll that NBC did and included in the NBC morning newsletter called First Read, where NBC asked um, Republicans, self-identified Republicans, whether they are basically first supporters of Donald Trump or first supporters of the Republican Party. And you would expect in this moment with Donald Trump still as the incumbent president, at least I would have expected massive numbers for for Trump and uh, relatively smaller numbers for the party. In this case, it was 53 percent of the party says that they are sort of Trump first Republicans and 39 percent 
says they are sort of traditional Republicans, Republican first Republicans. I just thought that was an interesting window into um, where the Republican Party is right now. And while Donald Trump is constantly tweeting, I think usually falsely, about his support among Republicans being at 95 percent, you're seeing a fair amount of erosion in those numbers. And I think this this poll points to that sort of maybe quieter, but nonetheless uh, still prominent group. You know, he's doing an interesting job with that since we were talking about the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, I'll just highlight Chip Roy from Texas, someone who came out yesterday to, to talk about the Liz Cheney situation for sure and has defended the president on a lot of stuff and is in a very tight race against Wendy Davis, who ran for governor in Texas, but has also come after the president when he has, you know, said he's going to use executive orders for crazy stuff that he can't, that's unconstitutional. And even today said that his comments about Ghislaine Maxwell were unacceptably obtuse, I think were his words. Yeah. Uh, and that could be an interesting in-between for those people in that poll, for instance. That's like what that speaks to me is like Chip Roy saying like, ah, I think I can actually combine those two groups. Like you're Trump first, but you're like, eh there's some things here that I still like about the Republican party as well. Uh, okay. We're moving on to the next topic, okay. which is related. I, say, Jonah. I, I <laughs> like, the, I like the phrase unacceptably obtuse because it implies a certain level of tolerance for obtuseness. <laughs> that, <laughs> that this, this one case exceeded the normal <laughs> levels of obtuseness that we have to tolerate every day. I'm sorry. Go Look, on. he's a member of Congress. I think that he uh, tolerates obtuseness on the regular. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, Get off my lawn. Okay, next topic. There was an interview with John Weaver in the Washington Post with a guy named Greg Sargent, who's an opinion columnist. Um, John Weaver is heading up the Lincoln Project. This is the anti-Trump. They define it, their mission as defeating Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. And it includes a pledge to elect Democrats over Republicans who, like Trump, do not, quote, support the Constitution. Okay, fair enough. They've raised about $16.8 million this past quarter. This is like John Weaver, George Conway. It's like this one group of uh, never Trumpers. Um, but there were like some interesting parts of the interview. So I just want to read this section. Weaver insisted that the group would actively work against Republicans who obstruct a Biden presidency, which would face a deeper crisis than in 2009 when Republicans tried to obstruct Obama in hopes of profiting off continuing economic misery. That was just straight reporting there. Uh, he will have a mandate to clean up the mess that Trump has created with the help of his enablers, Weaver said of a Biden presidency. That shouldn't be held up. We intend to do all we can to make sure that doesn't happen. I asked Weaver what the Lincoln Project would do if a Biden, if a President Biden and a Democratic Congress tried to raise taxes on the rich to help fund a multi-trillion dollar rescue effort. Weaver said he couldn't directly address this until he saw specifics, but said, quote, will generally be supportive of trying to get this country moving forward. There's other groups like this, the Republican voters against Trump. They've committed to $10 million. This is uh, Bill Kristol, Tim Miller from the Jeb campaign, uh, Sarah Longwell. Here's my question to y'all. Is the Biden campaign, is the Democratic Party going to embrace these folks? Is this just the new alignment and they're now going to be the uh, the on the right of the Democratic Party? Or 
is somehow this going to be the Republican part of the Republican Party who's supporting a Biden agenda? So I think the short answer to the question is every single one of these groups will not matter at all one second after the election is called. To either side. No, I, no, I mean, as, just as the group. Like, I'm not talking about the individuals involved because the individuals will make different choices. But I think these groups, um, they have different strategic, they have different strategic, um, they have different strategies for accomplishing the goal. They have different goals in some ways. I think Republican voters against Trump, if you hear Sarah talk about it, what she is saying is, look. Not me, not, Sarah. Yeah, Sarah Longwell talk about it. <laughs> uh, or Tim Miller talk about it. They're not saying we're supporting... It's just Republican voters against Trump. We're not asking people to support Joe Biden. We have people who send in videos who say, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be voting Republican straight ticket except for president. The goal here is to remove Trump from office, period. It is not any agenda beyond that. We're not asking people to become Democrats. We're not asking people to purge the Senate of Republicans. So that's a distinct thing from the Lincoln Project, which seems to be sort of a scorched earth approach but I think the reality is that the Lincoln Project is, is kind of a troll in a way. I mean, it's, it's very intentionally trying to get into the president's head uh, and has succeeded to some extent in doing that. Um, it now seems to be trying to get into the head of the GOP and the broader conservative media. It succeeded in doing that in spades. I mean, it's talked about in Fox Prime Time. It feels to me like what they're trying to what they're running is essentially a disruption operation. But I think the minute that a Joe Biden wins, again, if these trends hold, we all always caveat, nobody's going to be saying we need to get John Weaver on the phone for the Biden agenda. You know, we need to get George Conway on the phone about judicial nominations. I mean, the, the Democratic Party establishment will run the House. It will run the Senate if they win the Senate. It'll run the Biden presidency and and. And John they, Weaver's not going to be chief strategist at the DNC. And, and he's certainly not going to be the chief strategist at the RNC in formulating a response to the Biden agenda. <laughs> so it it's just seems to me like this, this is a, a movement that ends the instant a Trump presidency ends. Is this an evolutionary dead end? I, I mean, think, I think, so. I think there's, there's, look, there are some good people. I think Jennifer Horn, uh, former Republican Party chairwoman in, in New Hampshire, Good person. I think there are some good people involved with the Lincoln Project, but they've jumped the shark. Are you about to say good people on both sides? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say good people on both sides. I think they've jumped the shark. I mean, look, I think if you're somebody who's who, who's in favor of, of limited government, um, as Lincoln Project folks claim to be, um, what's the purpose of targeting vulnerable Republicans like a Cory Gardner um, who, you know, they, from, from their perspective, hasn't spoken enough loudly enough, hasn't aggressively challenged Donald Trump loudly enough. I think, you know, I would say that's true of a lot of Republicans in the Senate, a lot of Republicans in the House. But if you're in favor of limited government, getting them out does what exactly? Like actively campaigning for Democrats against these vulnerable Republicans does what exactly? I think it, it, the effect is it gives Joe Biden a much greater, if he's elected, a much greater hand in pushing an agenda that is not going to be 
for limited government. So I, I, I guess I don't, I don't understand. I can understand their frustration with Trump. I, can, I, I get all that. I guess if, if you actually are for limited government and you think limited government is what's best for the country, going after these senators in the way that they're doing doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I, so I agree with that. I, I think the issue, there are two things that, to say about this. One is, um, I think the Lincoln Project undercuts the effort of the Republican voters against Trump because- They get clumped together. They yeah. Get, yeah. Clumped together. I mean, I, I know people who follow politics closely and lump them together. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, David's right. When you hear Tim Miller talk about it, he says, look, you know, we just, we're not pro-Biden, we're anti-Trump. And uh, we want to get them out of there. And we don't care what your reasons are and all of that. And for a bunch of people who feel guilty, who are on the bubble about not voting for the Republican president, being told that if you don't also vote against Republican your Republican senators and Republican congressmen, that's just a bridge too far for them, psychologically and as a matter of marketing. And to be coaxed to, to have this sort of brand confusion between Republican voters against Trump and the Lincoln Project is bad for the what is presumably the ultimate goal of both groups, which is to get Trump out of office, because it's going to make a lot of people hard, those, those voters on the bubble or on the margins harden their positions, because they're, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to, you know, like, get rid of Cory Gardner, too. What's that about? We want to give let Joe Biden get rid of the filibuster and have, you know, unchecked, uh, you know, control in Washington. I know a lot of conservatives who don't like Trump, but really don't want to lose the Senate. Um, and the, the Lincoln Project seems to be eager to lose the Senate. And I just think that's nuts as a matter of strategy. The other thing is, you know, so my first job in Washington, I worked for this guy, Ben Wattenberg, who was the founder, one of the founders of the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, which was the precursor to the Democratic Leadership Council. And what those guys did was they thought that the Democratic Party had gone way too far left, starting with McGovern, and they wanted to pull it back to the center. A lot of sort of Democratic neocon types in there, uh, foreign policy hawks, that kind of thing. Uh, people who liked the Great Society, but maybe thought it went too far. And what they did was not target existing Democrats, is they funneled money and resources and arguments to Democratic candidates that reflected their views. And I would much rather see some sort of effort like, I would at least have more respect for an effort that was less about monetizing Steve Schmidt's Morning Joe appearances and, and bombing John Weaver's um, Messiah complex uh, and actually trying to influence the party through a debate and through arguments and by putting forward candidates who represent their views more, whether I agree with them or not, that's how you affect change within a party. But just seeming like, uh, you know, the guy swinging a cudgel, at, you know, at the bar and breaking all the bottles, uh, it's just not attractive to anybody who isn't already on their side. All right, David, I want to leave enough time for your topic too. Okay, well, real fast. There's a, I think there's a difference, and y'all tell me if I'm crazy. Crazy. Between, between a Trump defeat and a Democratic victory. So what I mean by this is, what does a Trump repudiation actually look like? Is it sweeping aside uh, more House Republicans, sweeping aside the Republicans out of the Senate and sweeping in Biden in a powerful, in, a, in the power, in the pole position to implement his agenda? 
Or what if you swept out Trump and you retained a Republican Senate majority that then sent in that that action sent a message that says, wait a minute, there is a market for non-Trump ideas. <laughs> there is a market for a non-Trump Republican Party. There exists a viable non-Trump Republican Party. Trump is the problem. And that seems to be like the laser focus of Republican voters against Trump that strikes me as far more sound than, hey, let's do this, this thing that it seems like there's a, this small, the entire constituency for it exists on Twitter of scorched earth against the GOP entirely. And that will be interpreted not as a mandate for Biden, but as a repudiation for Trump. I think those are different things. So a lot of this conversation, by the way, previews a piece that Declan Garvey's working on and reporting out today. And uh, Declan, who definitely listens to this podcast, uh, and I had a bet on some of your answers. And all I can say is, Declan, you owe me, I think it was a quadrillion dollars. So <laughs> I'll take it in uh, small bills, please. Thank you. You're not going to tell um, us what the bet was? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Will you tell us on Dispatch Live? Rude. Yeah, I'll tell you on Dispatch Live. All right. Now people have to tune in. <laughs> All right. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor today, ExpressVPN. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why there's ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you won't even know you have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com freedom, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash freedom, expressvpn.com slash freedom to learn more. David, your last go. Yeah, so this is really going to bring the uh, mood down. Um, so the question is going to be, what if the pledge of never again, um, of genocidal uh, of genocidal actions from a nation state is being violated by a nuclear power. And yeah, that is a downer. David. Yeah. Isn't that a downer? Yeah. Um, more and more evidence is emerging some of it through the daily mail. So we have to sort of take, we have to take it with a grain of salt, but if not outright genocide, very genocide like activities undertaken by China against the Uyghur minority in China, including some really vivid footage, incredibly vivid stories. I mean, everything from people lined up with shaved heads, getting to, ready to get on trains to head to concentration camps, um, claims that people are being, you know, enforced atheism, enforced violations of Muslim teaching, forced, you know, pork being forced down them, et cetera, et cetera. Mass, um, 
just essentially uh, a mass atrocity. We, you know, I don't think we have enough evidence of genocide, but a mass atrocity being undertaken by a um, nuclear armed economic uh, and increasingly military superpower. And, you know, I think that this is going to be the central, in addition to the challenge from Russia, which in many ways feels more conventional, this is going to be one of the central challenges of the next 10, 15, 20 years. And it strikes me that we don't, we, I have not seen either at the Trump administration, I think there is, uh, there was a speech from Bill Barr that I thought was actually quite good about what China's intentions are and how China is exploiting American companies. In fact, one of the, I think one of his good lines was he's, they're not actually trying to, to uh, cooperate with you. They're ultimately trying to replace you. Um, they, will, they will work with you until you can be replaced by a domestic corporation or a domestic industry. Um, at the same time, we have a president right now who will praise the Chinese uh, premier. He will um, allegedly endorse concentration camps. And we have a U.S. Pacific fleet. You know, this is like item number 50 on the headlines list in this crazy year. But um, what's happening in the U.S. Pacific fleet is, should be a national scandal. We just had an amphibious assault ship, the USS Bonhomme Richard, I believe is how you pronounce it that caught fire and is now one of only four amphibious assault ships that can carry the F-35 is now out of commission indefinitely. And we have a real problem on how to respond. And my question is, who in the U.S. government do you think is speaking most intelligent, speaking intelligently about it? And what are they saying that you think it can be productive in responding to China? That's got to be a Steve question. That's a good question. Um, um, I know the bar. By the way, while Steve answers this very serious question, an important question, I just want to point out that there's a um, cardboard box robot over his shoulder that I can see. <laughs> <laughs> there is. And it kind of undermines this discussion a little bit, Steve. Sorry, we've got little kids all over the place here. <laughs> it's great. Um, I know the the. Bill Barr speech that David mentioned, I agree that it was a good one. Um, I think Mike Pompeo has been pretty strong on on these things. And uh, pointing to the Senate, I would say um, Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio, Ben Sass uh, have, I guess they've talked more about the, the, the threats. Um, Sass has spoken about the human rights abuses. Um, so I'd point to, to those folks as as people who are kind of trying to raise alarms about the the growing threat and the growing challenge that is China. And as to the other question, I mean, at, at the very least, I mean, it would be great to have a president of the United States who we could count on to give a speech calling the Chinese out on this. Um, you know, there have been credible reports be, be, before this video that reemerged on social media this past week of these Uyghurs that David subscribed. There have been credible reports of these work, labor, concentration camps. Um, there's been interesting UN reporting on them. We certainly know enough to know what's happening. It's not an excuse at this point to say that we don't understand what's happening. And it would be wonderful for for the president of the United States to, to get up and, you know, like Ronald Reagan would have, 
um, call the Chinese on on their abuses and um, suggest that as he takes on China on on trade and intellectual property and these other areas, that this is part of that case. So I'm going to jump in. I don't have any disagreement with the people who are talking about this. Uh, some are doing it fine. Some are doing it a little bit. Um, I thought when we had talked about this before, you were going to ask the question slightly differently. And because this is something that I've thought about a lot. I've written columns about how never again is meaningless. Um, yeah. Quite a few times, particularly about forget a nuclear power China, which I agree makes it more difficult. Um, North Korea. Yeah. You know, the if if the North Korean, uh, the, the, the people in the North Korean gulag, never mind the hundreds of thousands who were who starved to death in the 1990s, um, simply wore those Auschwitz pajamas, you would say, oh, my God, it's the Holocaust again. Right. And or if you just didn't care that, you know, it wasn't Jews, but but North Koreans who were being systemically brutalized and murdered and all of these kinds of things. Um, and we did nothing about that either, really. Um, and so I, my own view on this is, because I think about this quite often, and um, and so I want to kind of change it, my not answer the question, because at the end of the day, I kind of think the politicians matter less. Mm-hmm. And the only way you're really going to affect the kind of change that you want is if basically American citizens, specifically consumers, can get outraged i mean you, i mean people, and are willing to act act against yeah, their economic they, like, interest well, south africa changed in large part because of boycotts around the world yeah. and um yeah but our like south africa didn't make my you know whatever thing in my house 50 cents yeah no, yeah i, I agree so with David's that it's holding up his iphone i agree it makes it harder but at the same time um you know, we spent we spent a lot of time in the last three months talking about systemic racism and the legacy of Jim Crow. China has Jim Crow right now. Yeah. If you are not yeah. on Chinese, you are a second class citizen at best in China. You can't go to the best schools. You can't travel internally. They have outright Han supremacy in China. Everything they actually have still have slavery in China, and it says something about what people are really talking about about when they complain about racism and bigotry here at home and then just truly don't care about what's going on in China. And I think the only way to sort of change the global climate on this, because that's what you'd have to do, is you have to just have people saying, look, I don't want, you know, it's like instead of blood diamonds, it's blood iPhones. And I think that's sort of a, that's a generational argument that you have to make. You're not going to make that argument in the next six months and win. You know, it took a long time with South Africa. It takes a long time with these kinds of things. But that puts the political pressure on politicians to cater to a constituency, which is the only way to get politicians to do anything meaningful. David, did you finish The Splendid and the Vile yet? The book on Churchill by Eric Larson? No, I've not finished it I think we're both reading. Yeah. You know, one of the things that strikes me to Jonah's point is um, I think we have, and this is true for a lot of history that I find fascinating, because we know how the story ends, we put the end of the story also at the beginning as an inevitability kind of. And what's really interesting about this book is it's uh, really telling the story of World War II before the United States gets into it. And, but it talks about the United States a lot. Um, We didn't really care at all. And America's living its best life. Um, 
Uh, and you have Roosevelt sort of like, look, politically, I can't do a thing about this. You have the Lend-Lease Act um, that was sort of the most he could possibly do. Uh, and all the while, you know, the, the <laughs> Hitler's telling the Japanese, like, you know, it'd be awesome is if you could distract them to their left uh, so that that way we're, we're good on the right here. Um, and I wonder whether we have the wrong sense about never again, that really there wasn't a never again until it had already happened. We already knew about the concentration camps um, in such graphic photographic detail that had never been shown before. And, you know, this video that you're talking about, David, is not been widely seen. Um, It's grainy. It's difficult to see what's really going on. I don't think we have the uh, World War II style photos of the concentration camps, perhaps Vietnam, the closest thing is um, those very graphic uh, pictures that came back in Vietnam. Like it, there's nothing to land it at home yet, Jonah. No one's going to give up their iPhone for discussion over Han supremacy. They're going to give it up when it, when it strikes them and they see their own children or just outright abuse that they cannot tolerate. And I don't think that's, we're even remotely in the vicinity of that happening. Yeah, yet. I, I, I just much- push back on that a little bit. The footage out of China about them destroying mosques and, 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 and cemeteries, um, even the train car stuff, uh, is that footage really that much less compelling than what people saw from South Africa um, about you know townships and whatnot? I mean, I, I think you have to make an argument and I agree with you, it would take a while. That's why I called it a generational thing. But basically, people don't want to know. That's my problem. Yes. You know? And yeah. it's not that they don't know. It's that they don't want to know. They don't want to factor it in. Some, it's, it's sort of a Herman Kahn thing. It's too terrible to contemplate, so they don't. And, it's, it's, and again, our economic entanglement with China is a hell of a lot different than it was with Germany true. and with South Africa. I don't think we've experienced something like this. And to David's initial question, add in the nuclear power part and and you've got a real mess. You've got huge American <laughs> industries that have a lot of their future business planning tied up in the People's Republic of China. You have an American public that there has this strong sort of America first pull back instinct at the very same time that if we're actually going to want to do anything serious about China, we might arguably have to push forward more. Um, we might have to uh, reinforce some of these alliances that we're calling into question one of the first things that the Trump administration did was kill TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which had provisions in there that were designed specifically to address uh, trade problems with China. I mean, there's nobody who is cleanly on the field of play here where the dealing with China fits neatly within all of the priors. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why je- everything feels to me to be so confused. But I also agree with Jonah, I think there's a very powerful argument to be made right back into the face of woke capitalism in the United States that says, essentially, I'm not going to listen to you about old tweets at all, unless you're at least beginning to talk about disentangling yourself from this Jim Crow, a mass atrocity empire overseas. And just shut up about the old tweets and all of the stuff that all of this stuff that woke capitalism is inflicting upon the United States, boycotting states because of religious liberty and this and that until you get your house in order. 
And yeah, but David, there's the other part of this, which is uh, look at what's happened with Huawei. The United States, I mean, that's a boycott, if you will, of Huawei. Um, I'm not saying China doesn't wish that Huawei was operating in the United States. Of course they do. But they've got plenty of other markets. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I mean, there's no, that's the one of the problems we have here is that when you're talking about a nuclear-armed economic superpower, there are not great options. But I also think that w- you can still make them pay a price. You can still impose consequences. And some of those consequences ca- have to come culturally from the United States. I think that Joan is right about that. I think that those who are critiquing woke capitalism for its enormous blind spot around China, like the, you guys know how much I love the NBA. But the idea that you can't put free Hong Kong among the, you know, on the back of a jersey or purchase free Hong Kong from, the, you know, social justice messaging from the NBA store. I mean, come on, y'all. Like, seriously? Uh, and and that's, that's, that's a layup. That's a layup. And you won't even do that. All right. And with that, uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the new format. Let us know if you did or didn't. Uh, feedback would be nice. And final question, starting with Jonah. So we ended up, as we were discussing the pod in advance yesterday, we got in a conversation about MC Hammer. And Jonah, uh, what is your, I don't know, like concert that we don't think you will have been to? Ah, uh, okay. Um, that you don't think I would have been to. Uh, <clears throat> I was going to talk about... Britney Spears. Yeah. First of all, <laughs> I, I am not a big concert goer because I just don't like large crowds full of enthusiasm that are enjoying themselves. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Uh, uh, I went to an Indigo Girls concert once. <gasps> and, I love the Indigo Girls. Well, and not only did I go to an Indigo Girls concert <laughs> once, I performed on stage with the Indigo Girls as part Excuse of the me? Spitfire tour along <gasps> with... Uh, Jello by offer from the Dead Kennedys and Ralph Nader and uh, you know and Jonah Goldberg. I mean these names just sort of flow together. And uh, but I'll have Wait, to tell what? that story Which another song? time. What do you mean you performed? I did not sing. They sang. Um, you juggled. When I first got more, into public more cowbell. When I first started doing like campus speaking stuff in the late '90s, early 2000s, I was the Washington Generals of this thing called the Spitfire Tour, which was this peripatetic sort of political minstrel show kind of thing. And it had all of these like famous left-wing people. And then I was the guy who was supposed to say, fulfill the view that conservatives are bad people. And, you know, and like the Washington Generals against the Harlem Globetrotters, lose entertainingly. And we went from campus to campus around the country. I must have done that. A dozen of them. The lead singer from Everclear was part of it. Uh, This guy, Michael Franti from... I uh, can't remember the name of his band. Um, oh, man. High school me is flipping out. Yeah, uh, Rosie <laughs> Perez. I did a couple of events with her. And uh, I did a lot with Kennedy, who's now with Fox. But back then yeah, she was MTV. Yeah. And the big one we did with Ralph Nader and uh, and the Indigo Girls uh, was at the University of Southern Illinois or something like that. And everyone was shocked to know that I actually liked the Indigo Girls and, and, and knew a lot of their songs because I wasn't supposed to be that. I was supposed to be more evil than I was. <laughs> I'm definitely going to be doing a uh, Spotify Everclear soundtrack with dinner tonight. Thank you. There you go. Uh, all right, uh, David, you're up. So, you know, I've been to a few concerts, but I think the 
craziest, uh, oddest one was I was, uh, I, I met this girl on uh, a meeting, preliminary meeting to go on a mission trip to Honduras. And she immediately asked me to go to a Leonard Skinner concert with her which I was happy to go. And it w- turned into one of the most memorable concert experiences of my life because it was at a place called Starwood Amphitheater in Nashville, which was this big outdoor amphitheater, very cloudy night, which will become important in a second, because about halfway through the, uh, about halfway through the concert, all of a sudden, all of the lights go out. And I mean, when I say all of the lights go out, I mean every light in the amphitheater. The concert stops, everything. It's as if an EMP went off and all of the uh, electricity in the United States was just destroyed. It was completely pitch black. I mean, no lights at all. 15,000 Skinnerd fans about, you know, the concert had been going on about an hour, but we'd been there about two and a half hours because, you know, the band doesn't actually come on for an hour and a half. And what ended up happening was one of the most surreal things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it turned out that a drunk driver had hit a power transformer and had knocked out just all power in the entire area of Nashville. But what happened next was people, to light the way, began to pile their clothes in giant piles, pour like PGA, pure grain alcohol, on the clothes and light them on fire. This is a terrible idea. Yes. Yes, and then began dancing around the flames. So like you had Burning Man, but inside? Burning Man in an amphitheater. That's a terrible, so still, terrible idea. And the problem was that my, my date wanted to leave because it was kind of a scary scene, but I was fascinated by what was happening. Like, I had never seen anything like it in my life. It was like, you know, returning to the redneck state of nature. And... <laughs> This this literally went on for about 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes. And then we finally realized the concert wasn't coming back. By that time, the lawn was full of blazing clothes. It was really one of the most remarkable uh, experiences I've ever had. Born the first Darwin Award. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know of any I don't know of any injuries, but how would I know? There was no Internet or Twitter or anything like that back then. So for all I know, there's like some, you know, granddad right now saying, yeah, I got this third degree burn at Skinner <laughs> in 1991. Yikes. Uh, yeah. All right, Steve. So I feel like we should just not go, right, Sarah? I mean, there's no beating that. That was a lot. As far as weird concert experiences. <laughs> that was the like, weirdest. Was, was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so my, my, I mean, I had one weird concert. It was also my best concert I've ever been to. It was by a guy named Kelly Joe Phelps. We drove four hours to Dayton, saw him in a basement of a little bar. He's this extraordinary talent, plays dobro guitar, sings, incredible. And there were like 15 people there in this, in this venue. I mean, it didn't seat more than a few hundred, but it, nobody was there. And that was great, um, great, weird in a great way. The the other weird concert experience I had was going to see MC Hammer, which um, led us to this this point. Uh, MC Hammer was performing on the main, main stage at Summerfest. Did you wear your puffy in, pants to the concert? In Milwaukee. I did not wear my puffy what pants. What would you have worn um, to an MC 
Hammer concert, my clothing, Steve. I'm just curious. Um, <laughs> I probably shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops of some That's kind. That's not cool at all. Um, the my shirt matters in in a minute. So I went to the the concert um, with a bunch of friends. Uh, Summerfest, by the way, is this, this extraordinary music festival in Milwaukee. It has like ten stages, and you have sort of A-list bands playing on half of them at any given time. It's amazing. Um, so MC Hammer was at the main stage. I went there with a bunch of friends. We, this was the summer before I turned 21. I was not yet 21. I was drinking beer with a bunch of people who were 21. But when it came time to buy the next round of beers, I volunteered. Um, walked up to the bar, presented the bartender with my uh, fake ID, and he grabbed it, snatched it called over the manager, called over security, showed the manager, came back to me, flashed my fake ID to me and said, this is a fake ID. I know this is a fake ID because somebody else presented one just like it right before uh, you came up here. And not really thinking clearly, um, I was so excited to, to catch him in a lie that I said, that's impossible we made those fake IDs on a huge board in my fraternity. <laughs> and then occurred, it occurred to me what I had said. So I took off on a dead sprint through the concert venue, took my shirt off because I knew that that's how they would describe me if they had, were trying to, to catch me. And I could see the security folks running behind me. I made it to safety, watched the entire MC Hammer concert without my shirt on. This is um, the ah. most like teenage guy story ever, because if you if they had gotten you like the amount of trouble you would have been in for that is just so much greater than standing there. They they weren't going to arrest you, probably like you were going to be just fine. They were going to take your ID. But instead, you took off at a sprint. Yeah, well, it worked out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was a lot faster back then. I was a lot, a lot faster back then. I probably wouldn't repeat the performance. The concert still lives in my, my head as one of the best concerts I've ever been to. And, and it was an extraordinary show, just exceptional show. All um, the better without a but shirt. It may, it, it may <laughs> be that I um, liked it a little bit more because I had just escaped the, the uh, adrenaline arms of justice. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Wow. I have, I have nothing. So I like, I'm a big Austin city limits. I went to jazz fest. I've gone, I've traveled around going to Brandy Carlisle concerts and Dave Matthews concerts, uh, some Pat green all around Texas. Um, so that gives you like a flavor for like my musical taste, which I think is pretty great all <laughs> in all. Um, but I also am very cheap. So I have terrible tickets, like always lawn tickets for everything, like really back, back tickets, you know, like the Dave Matthews, like I'm in the the pot section. Like it's, <laughs> it reeks of pot every time. Isn't that the whole crowd? Fair. <laughs> but like, I'm in the way back where like the pot isn't very good either, I guess. I don't know. I haven't smoked pot. Uh, so this will then come as a surprise when you know all of that about me, which is um, not that long ago. I, uh, was in the fourth row for the Miley Cyrus concert here in DC. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And how was it? You know what? The, the concerts that I was going to were like about the music because you love the sound 
that is not, I realized, why you go to a Miley Cyrus concert. It's a show. It's like a live show, like Cirque du Soleil, but with Miley Cyrus gyrating. Um, and in that sense, like the production value is incredibly high compared to Dave Matthews, which is just like four hours of Dave sort of doing that like weird thing with his feet, you know, bopping. Um, so yeah. Uh, and you, you know, she doesn't disappoint as a performer. Um, there's a lot of tight leather. So or Sarah, rather, I can not a lot of tight leather, as it were. <laughs> I can one up the Miley Cyrus encounter. Okay. I was an extra in the Hannah Montana movie. Yes, indeed. What? Yes, indeed. No. Yes. Do we save yes. this for Dispatch Live? I almost. <laughs> I don't. I was even know. indeed. Yeah. There. I. I. You know. I'm a true Renaissance man. Really. I mean. You know. You're something. <laughs> if I watched it tonight, could I see you? Unfortunately, you would have to freeze frame it because um, they cut the parts where I would have been close up, but I was in the crowd in the final scene of the movie wow. where she, yeah, yeah, I was in the crowd. This was wow. a, so, and it I, it actually happened when I was on leave uh, from Iraq. So I came home from leave, on leave, from in mid-tour leave, and she was filming her movie in our town. And well, according to this, you know, her song, she, she does like Nashville. Yeah. 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 No, I mean in Columbia, Tennessee, where I lived oh, at the time, like wow. in the capital of the world. And my kids were huge Miley Cyrus fans and to Hannah Montana fans and to cushion the blow of me leaving again, we uh, decided to have a special day of going to the filming and being an extra. And it was quite an experience. Uh, yeah. And that is a great way to end this podcast. Listeners, <laughs> I will be thinking about that, I guess, for the rest of the day. I don't, I don't know. I'm between, I mean, I'm going to listen to some Everclear and see if I can get it out of my head. Um, again, send us your feedback on this episode. Tell us what you think. Tune into Dispatch Live Thursday night, 830 Eastern. And we will look very much forward to talking to you again next week. <laughs>